I wanted to take a few minutes to reach out. I, along with so many here on campus, are thinking of you. Over the past month, college presidents across the country have taken to YouTube to talk to the students who are no longer on their campuses. We've been thinking about graduation, and we are going to have to cancel the ceremony for this year. It pains me to think that you will not have this kind of situation, you won't have a celebration, and that I can't shake your hand on that stage or high-five all the great things you've done. From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Stephen Smith. Colleges and universities are having to make changes on the fly because of COVID-19. They've put classes online. They've changed the way they grade. They changed the way they'll be admitting students in the coming fall. So we put out a call to John Marcus, a higher education editor at the Heckinger Report. We wanted to talk about what's happening at colleges and universities right now and how students and professors are adapting. We also wondered what to look out for in the lead-up to the new school year in the fall. So, John, um, higher ed has obviously changed a lot over recent weeks. And for you personally, you're a teacher at Boston College. What are you what are you noticing from your students? It's very interesting because uh, I'm, I'm able to see this through the perspective of a, a, uh, someone who teaches college kids and, uh, and now has to do that remotely. What, what's happening now, I think, is widely misconstrued as being online higher education, which requires uh, a lot of planning and setup and training. What we're really doing, most of us, is teaching our, our subjects remotely. Uh, as I teach my subjects remotely, I see my students um, off in their h- homes, most of them, uh, some of them relegated to the basement uh, and uh, often sitting in a comfortable chair or on their bed. And it's important to kind of keep them engaged. And it's uh, it's been interesting. My students, I think most of them are still pretty engaged. I guest taught a high school class the other day that's taught by a, a friend who, who uh, teaches at a private school. And those students, some of them hadn't shown up, or there's, most of them were seniors. They were not particularly engaged. So it's really interesting. I think it's a case-by-case kind of thing, uh, how people are responding to this new world. So you teach uh, journalism at Boston College, right? I do teach journalism. Journalism is a, a course that's kind of tough to move online. Uh, so it's the same course. I mean, it's, it's a writing-intensive course. We're still doing that at a distance, and it's difficult at, for student journalists, as it is for real journalists, to go out in the real world and talk to real people. So they are doing that at a distance also. I think one thing that's an advantage for all of us who do what we do for a living is that people do have time to talk and, um, and are thoughtful and articulate about what's going on with them uh, and what they'd like to see happen and change over time. So... Uh, my students are doing the same thing. You mentioned that uh, this is not really a, a, a fair test of online learning happening nationwide. What does a well-designed online class look like compared to what <laughs> what you're doing, John? So, uh, so typically, what what's happened now uh, is that faculty have had to convert their courses in the middle of the semester. In most cases. In some cases where there are universities and colleges that are on the quarter system, they were able to begin a new quarter right from scratch. But for most of us, this happened in the middle of a semester. And so all we were really able to do in the course of the week or so that we all had to prepare was to convert our classes somehow into online uh, instruction. For many faculty, that meant uh, eliminating things like group projects, 
Uh, for others, it meant using a lot of technology. There are a number of platforms that allow for continuing communication online. Uh, Panopta is one that allows faculty to tape their lectures, um, video record their lectures. Uh, there are existing platforms that we used already, such as Blackboard and Canvas, that um, are places you can put your assignments um, and students can post their responses. Uh, but all of those are really just, that's just technology. Online higher education takes a lot more thought and planning and training, and this is not it. There were some uh, people who were speculating that after a semester of learning online, these millions of uh, college students who were learning on a brick-and-mortar campus would, uh, would flee to full-time online higher education. And in fact, what we're hearing and, we, and what we're reporting is that they do not like this. Uh, they don't like on the kind of online higher education that they're getting or the remote or distance higher education that they're getting. They were at a brick-and-mortar campus for a reason. There are a number of other kind of wraparound services you get in person, uh, athletics, intramurals, extracurricular activities, advisors, professors' office hours, libraries, uh, a lot of buildings and facilities, and they don't have those now. What's really interesting, I think, is that because we've, we've reached out to them to do this, college, un college and university presidents are very hesitant to talk about that. They don't want to say that what they do in the real world in, in normal times is better than online higher education. Why don't they want to say that right now? Because they're afraid of getting sued for their tuition money back by students and parents who are only getting online higher education this semester. Um, I do expect that there'll be lawsuits brought by students and their parents who want some of their tuition refunded since they paid for a lot more than a couple hours a week on Zoom. And um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. That can only make a bad situation worse for universities and colleges that are already facing really significant financial challenges right now. Let's talk a bit more about that. You have written a lot about smaller colleges struggling to survive financially. Um, what have you heard from those schools, especially those schools who are in this position of having to go to so-called online learning? What makes a college at risk in this time of crisis? Well, actually, three colleges have closed in the time of uh, since the uh, pandemic started. Uh, in a couple of cases, they blame the disruption caused by the pandemic. Uh, generally, what they say is it just made a bad situation worse for them financially. Uh, and uh, several other institutions, uh, one that comes to mind is Central Washington University in Washington State, um, has have declared financial exigencies. That allows them to... Um, uh, lay off tenured faculty. Uh, it's the first step in making significant structural changes. Uh, they also had their bonds downgraded uh, by Moody's, I think it was yesterday, because they are carrying a significant amount of debt. And right now, universities and colleges are really limited in the revenues that they can collect. Room and board are very important revenue producers for universities and colleges. They make money off of those. And in most cases, they've had to refund that money on a prorated basis or at least refund a credit for future room and board. Um, their endowments have uh, taken a big hit. 74% of university endowments are invested in equities or stocks. And like you and I and almost anybody else that has any that holds any shares right now, they've lost um, more than a third of their value. Uh, endowments support a lot of university operations, but most significantly financial aid. So universities are worried about what money they'll have left for that. 
and public universities and colleges, of course, are anticipating big uh, state budget cuts as states have to spend the huge amounts they're spending now to respond to the coronavirus and to provide services after the coronavirus. Uh, and higher education has, in other earlier recessions, been the first thing that gets cut. Let's get back to the student experience, both those students who are in college now and uh, students who are uh, waiting to hear where they got in or if they're going somewhere. Um, let's talk, first of all, about student-athletes. What happens to them? So student-athletes uh, can't get scouted. Uh, those in spring sports, the NCAA the other day, extended eligibility for a fifth year for students who play, play uh, spring season sports. Uh, you've got performance students in the performing arts that's very difficult to, um, uh, to teach online. Uh, we spoke with, for example, a, uh, a music major studying opera who uh, had won in a competition the right to perform at Carnegie Hall, canceled. She, like all of her other uh, classmates, have to do a graduate recital for credit to graduate. Um, she doesn't know how she's going to do that at a distance. Uh, she can't work with an accompanist. Uh, because they can't be in the same room together. So um, there are a lot of kind of unanticipated consequences of this distance that we've talked about. When universities originally um, dispersed, people were very focused on the fact that that was happening, that people were moving home, that was a hardship in itself, then that they were going online, and a lot of very important attention was paid to students who have um, housing and food insecurity, who really don't have anywhere to live except a dorm on campus or any place to eat except the meal plan. Uh, that's all very important, but I think what we overlooked were some of these other really significant issues. Like a lot of people who have had very little to do but binge, um, I was watching the documentary series Cheer on uh, Netflix, which is about uh, cheerleaders at a community college in Texas. They have perennially won the National Cheerleading Championship. Well, that's been canceled too. And anyone that's watched cheer will appreciate how important some of those activities outside of class can be to students who, like these, had that for their whole lives dreamed of competing in the National Cheerleading Championships. To some people might be dismissive of that, but it's, I think, a good example of the kinds of, of hopes and dreams that have really kind of been interrupted now for college students and for college seniors. And that's, I mean, even at the very basic level of things like senior events and graduations uh, have all been canceled. Graduations, many of them have already been canceled. Universities are looking for other ways to commemorate that college graduation. But imagine working that hard to graduate from college with a degree of, of some sort and not being able to commemorate it publicly. So all of those things are um, only slowly coming into focus that college students are enduring. I, obviously, everyone in society is, is dealing with things like this right now. But for college students, uh, in many cases, this is uh, really kind of a, a, a milestone moment in their lives, and it's been interrupted. There's a lot of talk uh, at different universities and colleges about grading. Some, some teachers have made their courses pass-fail, and there are some student activists who say that all classes should be pass-fail. What's behind that? Yes, so this is a fascinating phenomenon that, again, has gotten only limited attention. So uh, universities, uh, many of them, have uh, now allowed for the option of 
getting a, a grade of pass or fail instead of a letter grade. Typically, you're allowed to choose that option early in a semester. Most universities have moved it farther along in the semester so that students still can opt for that right now. In some cases, uh, some universities are letting you switch to pass-fail after you see your letter grades at the end of the semester. So um, that's a huge departure and one that was, in fact, uh, in response to students, many of them uh, who uh, submitted petitions to their universities to go pass-fail. The argument they made was that they were dealing with a lot of other stuff right now, and to expect them to maintain a high grade in a class they're taking online while they're also potentially supporting family or um, trying to, you know, deal with the, the line to get into the supermarket or all of the other things that, that all of us are facing, uh, they felt that it was only fair to get a pass-fail grade. But be careful what you wish for, because the problem with this is now that these students are going to have more trouble getting into graduate school or professional school that have admission requirements uh, of, of letter grades, and even more significantly, to transfer those credits from this semester uh, if they if they transfer schools. This is a hugely underappreciated problem because uh, even before this pandemic, four in 10 college and university students transferred at least once during the course of their time in college. And uh, those students already lose uh, more than 40% of the credits that they've already earned and studied for and paid for. And so this will only make that worse in several ways. First, um, many universities and colleges won't accept credit for a course that was pass-fail, um, or they'll, they'll accept it for elective credit, but not for credit toward a major. Many graduate schools won't accept a pass uh, grade uh, as opposed to a letter grade for admission into graduate or professional schools. Some graduate schools have said, we will take into account the situation, the circumstances of the pandemic semester. But if you look very carefully at what they're saying, for example, Harvard Medical School has said that they will take into account that a student uh, was required to switch to pass or fail. But, that, but if you read very carefully, the next sentence said, we would prefer that they have a letter grade. So that portends some problems ahead. Some universities are allowing students to decide one way or the other. Some universities aren't giving them that choice, including MIT, Columbia. They're saying you, you will only get a pass fail this, this semester. You do not have the option of letter grades. So the same students that were petitioning for the right to be graded only as passing or failing are now producing counter petitions saying, wait a minute, we want to get a grade. We want to get a letter grade. So there's a lot of confusion there. Um, the, uh, the problem has always existed for transfer students to get credit for their work. Uh, a pass grade is going to make that harder. Uh, and um, we are expecting, as a result of the economic toll of the pandemic, more students to transfer, either for, for financial reasons or because they want to uh, switch to a university or college closer to their families. And so this problem is only going to get worse unless universities or colleges uh, make allowances for it. Let's uh, turn now to what would be, theoretically, next fall's entering class. What's happening with high school seniors who are supposed to be finding out uh, or have been finding out about where they've been accepted and what are they thinking about the fall? So high school seniors are also in a really tough position right now, in addition to the fact that their proms are canceled, they're not sure whether, whether they'll have a graduation, and that they're missing out on the second half of their senior year in high school, which is another milestone in all our lives. 
In terms of like in-person, like actual graduation, which I was really looking forward to and I'm sure a lot of people were, I mean, I don't know if people are saying like Zoom graduation. I'm Audrey Dowling. I'm 18. I'm a high school senior at El Cerrito High School in El Cerrito, California, <laughs> right near like Berkeley and UC Berkeley. Audrey's deciding where she'll go to college and reconsidering whether or not she'd go to any that are far away from California. It's definitely making me a lot more wary. I haven't like committed to any school yet, but like thinking about, oh, do I want to be in a situation where I'm further from home, even if it's not the coronavirus that causes it? I think it's bringing this idea of disaster and evacuation and the fact that a lot of things that we took for granted as being these like certainties that we could count on maybe aren't so much. And so it almost makes you reevaluate like every part of this decision. Like I think I'm going into it a lot less sort of carefree than maybe I might have and more like, okay, there's there's a real possibility that something on a huge magnitude goes wrong. And, and what does that mean financially and, like, geographically for where I want to go to school? It's also made her reconsider smaller liberal arts colleges and universities. But I've heard rumors that, like, they might not be able to offer um, as much financial aid and things like that. Like, I was going into an interview with one of them, and my mom was like, you might want to think about somehow subtly <laughs> poking around, are they going to be open in four years? Like, do they have, have the funds to, to stay out the, the impacts of this crisis? In the absence of campus visits and tours, Audrey Dowling has gotten creative about seeing what schools could be like. I was considering UC Berkeley and UCLA, and I have friends who go to both. So I um, like had them ask their teachers, or they were kind enough to ask their professors for me if I could sit in on one of their Zoom classes. So that's something I've been doing um, to like get an idea of what it's like to be there without being there. Um, and then also just talking to friends about how they enjoy the experience. I'm trying to think other things that I've been looking at, like what is the living situation? You know, like, what is what is it like living in a dorm there? There are a lot of virtual tours online, which has been nice. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that, too. She says thoughts about what could be the long-term impacts of the virus are also making her think twice about what she'd like to major in. I remember when I was younger, like, hearing about what it meant to graduate college during the financial crisis and not having a job to look for. And so I always knew going into this process that I was probably going to have to take out some loans to, to make, you know, to make it work because college is crazy expensive, <laughs> obviously. But um, it does make me wonder, especially being like someone who I want to major in political science and the work that I've always envisioned doing has been like pretty like hands on, like talking to people, advocating for things. Um, and it's making me think about how that exists in a world where you can't even go see someone who's not in your immediate family, let alone, like, have a big event. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it makes a lot of kids, you know, even if, like, things wonderfully end up being good by the end of the summer and we're able to start school, it makes a lot of kids think, like, oh, maybe I should be thinking about engineering and computer science, which is like the work that, for example, my dad does, and you're able to do it at home um, if something like this were to happen again. John Marcus says many students are left to make big decisions about where to go, what to study, and how to pay for it without the resources and guidance counselors they have had at school. 
the acceptances and denials from universities and colleges went out on time. Uh, that would have been over the last few weeks. And so now they have to make a decision. But they have to make that decision without the advantage of a high school college counselor because they're not in school. Um, they have to make that decision with, without their parents knowing what their financial situation will be in the fall. Many people obviously have lost their jobs. Many people have lost their investments. Many people who save for college have invested in the markets. And so now they have a, a significant a uh, significantly lower amount of money to spend for college. Um, to exacerbate that problem, the uh, universities and colleges have made financial aid offers based on financial aid forms that these families uh, filled out before the markets crashed. So representing wealth and income that they probably don't have anymore. So universities and colleges have made those offers of acceptance or denial uh, and most of them are sticking to what's called decision day, which means these students have until May 1st, just a few weeks now, to decide whether or not to um, accept that, um, uh, that offer and enroll uh, and to put down a deposit. So uh, some uh, universities and colleges have moved back decision day, understanding that it's only contributing to the anxiety of these students who they've accepted and their parents. Uh, many of them have kind of stuck their heels in and refused to change decision day because they're really concerned about their own um, their own issue, which is whether they'll fill seats next fall. Uh, they expect that a lot of people who applied went before coronavirus won't show up this fall uh, and um, th won't be able to afford to show up this fall, will be reluctant to enroll without being certain that the problem will be over by September. And so universities and colleges are sort of looking out for themselves first. It happens to be really bad optics, considering that universities and colleges just got $14 billion in taxpayer money in the stimulus package um, at the same time that they're saying, but we're not going to move back decision day. Nonetheless, that's a decision that they've made uh, in many cases. Some of them, again, reluctantly are changing it. Uh, and um, even if they are making offers of financial aid, they're making much lower offers of financial aid. And this is only anecdotal so far, but... We're hearing of much lower offers of financial aid because uh, these universities and colleges have taken a beating on the markets themselves and the, their endowments, which support financial aid substantially, uh, are, um, are not going to be able to continue to do that. So they're worried about their, uh, their situations. They're, making, they're offering students less money who will no doubt need more money in the fall. Did the big financial package passed by Congress and signed by the president uh, make any distinction between those institutions that have traditionally had healthy endowments, the Harvards and the, and the like, or say Williams College, and the struggling institutions that you talked about earlier? N no, the, uh, it, it didn't make a distinction among institutions in that regard, but it did make a distinction, and the formula is still being worked out. But it will be giving some preference to institutions that enroll a significant amount of um, low-income students. And a big portion of that $14 billion that the colleges and universities are getting is supposed to go to emergency financial aid for students. Now, that's a very vague sort of requirement. No one is entirely sure how that's going to pan out. The Department of, Ed of Education is still working on the details of that. But it is supposed to go to students, um, not all of it directly to the institutions, um, but in fact through the institutions to the students who presumably will need it most. Um, it's a little early yet to know how that will work. 
What happens to students with work-study jobs? Are, uh, are they getting paid for not working? So this is another really big hit that students took that isn't, wasn't really noticed. Uh, no, most, in, most students that, that left their campuses also had to leave their work-study jobs. There are small glimmers of light in this area. Uh, um, Amherst College, for example, is continuing to pay work-study students, even if they can't work from home. Most universities and colleges, however, students had to leave uh, and leave their jobs as well. Work study was often, work study doesn't pay a huge amount of money, but it does a few things that's extremely important. It helps student, students pay for expenses outside of their tuition and their room and board, such as books or supplies, or if they live off campus for their rent, uh, for a car, for parking. Uh, and the work study money uh, also helps students avoid having to work somewhere off the campus, which research shows uh, hurts their their likelihood of graduating on time. Any other unexpected phenomena or trends that you've run into while doing your reporting on this? There are a few signs that some good things might come of this. Uh, so, for example, many universities and colleges, we, we've been talking about high school seniors, but high school juniors would have been taking standardized tests, the SAT and ACT, for instance, this semester. Those have all been postponed all over the world. And so a number of colleges and universities and entire public university state systems have gone test optional, at least for now. And many people who have never liked those tests and feel that they are not particularly equitable um, are optimistic that a lot of those institutions will never go back, that they'll remain test optional, that students who apply won't have to take those tests. Uh, so that's a big um, potential change that could result from this. In another area, we talked about the problems coming up for transfer if you have a course that's graded pass or fail. Uh, many universities and colleges have always had this, this acrimonious relationship about transfer credits. You can take a calculus course at one university and the next university to which the student transfers won't accept it for credit. That doesn't make a lot of sense considering that universities are all supposed to have similar standards that are, they're all accredited. They are required by law to be accredited by accrediting agencies that are supposed to ensure that they uphold those standards. And yet one university won't take credit from another university. This particularly affects community college students uh, who often get the short end of the stick in terms of almost everything, who can take a, a legitimate course that a four-year university won't accept for transfer credit. So in some states, notably Virginia, the community colleges and the public universities have in this pandemic worked together to streamline the transfer process. And even though that effort is devoted solely to this semester under which community colleges will give a grade of pass or P plus, they call it, uh, that the universities have pledged to accept for transfer credit, there is some hope that this will be an opportunity not a challenge, that this will be an opportunity for people to begin to work on making transfer easier. So those are some other kind of unanticipated consequences in a positive direction. John Marcus, always good to talk to you, and I look forward to um, hearing more as we venture through this uncertain, unpredictable time. Well, thanks so much for having me, and uh, stay safe and healthy. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week to talk about how the coronavirus is affecting K-12 education. And if you'd like to share a story about how your K-12 or college experience has changed personally, or for those that you know, let's talk. 
We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. And you can find all the reporting we talked about with John Marcus on how coronavirus is changing higher ed at heckingerreport.org. This episode was produced by Alex Baumhart with help from Sabby Robinson. It was edited by Chris Julin and mixed by Corey Schreppel. We partner with the Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>